When Paul writes to the saints at Philippi, it is a letter written to some of his dearest friends, and it is a letter to a young local church that was birthed through the power of the gospel and is sustained by the power of the gospel and whose only hope for the future is found in the gospel. This is Philippians, and we are Mercy Village Church. You can learn more at www.mercyvillage.church. I want to start today, you'll see the sermon title up there, Non-Anxious Presence. What does that even mean, right? Like, why does that matter to us today, non-anxious presence? And I hope that I can maybe begin to paint a picture of of why that's necessary at first, like why we need a non-anxious presence in our lives today. First, begin, we'll kind of go with the layers here of anxiety maybe that exists in our world. Think first, just on a general level, the sheer amount of information that we process on a daily basis. In this uh, smartphone age, internet everywhere, you know, more content, more uh, information is available to us than ever has been in the history of the world, just the, the click of a button. There's a pastor named Mark Sayers from Australia. He and I, another pastor you may have heard of named John Mark Comer, they hosted a podcast together for a while called This Cultural Moment. And Mark Sayers said it this way about just the, the generalized anxiety that exists in a world where we can know everything, right? He says, uh, we live in a world connected by a vast digital nervous system. Have you thought about it that way? Like, like our nervous system now is, is digitized in a way as a society. And the result, he says, is that we live in a world of ambient anxiety. It just, right, like on a general level, we're not talking about like deep, uh, what some might call clinical anxiety yet, or even like panic attacks yet, just generalized, like just the, the anxiousness of our day-to-day life because of how prolifically available to us information is. But think about it on a personal level, right? So you, you might scroll through Instagram, for instance, and be met with all sorts of expectations for how your life should look, how your child's next birthday should be, what your, what your husband should spring for on your next vacation, like what the world should look like as you scroll through Instagram, and, and possibly you scroll through Instagram and you get this utopian expectation for how life should be. All you have to do is then click one app over, click an app, what does that even mean? But you know, go one app over to CNN or Facebook, and you'll instantly be reminded of thousands of examples of why the world isn't ever seemingly going to be fixed from all of its brokenness, why those expectations in your life are possibly never going to come fully true, because you've got both the Ukraine and your annoying neighbor complaining about whatever, you know, like you've got all of this to balance, all of this to drink in in front of you. And all of this ambient anxiety, if you will, just kind of hangs in the air as we scroll. And sometimes we haven't even got out of bed yet. And we're already confronted with that. We want our lives to be something that they're not. We want problems in the world to be solved, etc., etc., etc. We live in a world laden with ambient anxiety. Now, that isn't new 
It's more prolific, more saturated, more expansive in this digital age than maybe it ever has been. But but all of us here have an understanding, regardless of how prolifically or non-prolifically we we use digital technology, of what it's like to, to be anxious. Whether it's about expectations of a spouse or or uh, as a new parent, or as a, a person who's taking a new job, or whatever it is. You, you, you know what it's like to have expectations put upon you by parents or a, a boss. To feel doubt about yourself, or about your circumstances, your situations. Anxiety is not a new thing. And I haven't even started yet talking about like clinical, actual anxiety. And the reason I have, and it's because I want all of us to understand, like even if you don't have a diagnosis with the word anxiety in it, that this is a battle that all of us are fighting. There are those of us who have received a diagnosis as well. In fact, reports say that, that people under 50 have experienced marked increases in diagnosed anxiety over the last 20 years, like very obvious increases in diagnosed anxiety in the last 20 years. It's a real thing. So why do I go through all of that? Because I hope that our hearts today, regardless of where we find ourselves in life, will hear the truth of this statement. We so desperately need to experience the non-anxious presence of Jesus. We so desperately need, all of us, to experience the non-anxious presence of Jesus. And not only that, but by His grace, we too can embody His non-anxious presence to the world around us, this world of ambient anxiety. And maybe the days that you're able to be a calming, non-anxious presence in the world around you, based on the heightened levels of anxiety we see, that may be one of the most uh, vivid examples of Jesus that certain people will have in their lives. We need the non-anxious presence of Jesus, and we can grow to embody that non-anxious presence in our world. Father, today what we know not, please teach us. I've got nothing. I mean, I genuinely have nothing. You have everything needed in this room. What we are not, please make us. I can't change anybody, but you can. What we have not, please give us. We are desperate for you today, even if we don't acknowledge it. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. I'll read verses 5 and the first part of 6 again, just to kind of get us thinking in this way. This is Paul's call. He says there's another way than just this ambient anxiety, this constant churning, this constant, constant anxiousness in life. He says let your reasonableness, your steadiness, your stability, your calmness be known to everyone. I'm already convicted. I, I, my, I'm this guy, right? I got work to do. So I'm not just preaching from a place not preaching myself. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything. Do not be anxious about anything. Paul says there's a better way. Thankfully... Surrounding this call, though, to be calm, to be a non-anxious presence in the world around us, there's three things that he gives to us to help us in that. Four things, quite frankly. Jesus is the primary one. But three practical things that he gives to us, and, and one of them is a posture. There's a posture we can carry in life that will help us grow less anxious 
in the world around us. There's some disciplines that we can employ that will help us be less anxious in the world around us. And there is a call to mindfulness uh, that will help us to be less anxious in the world around us. We'll, We'll walk through them. He starts with an example. What he, what he drives at when he says uh, there is a posture that you can live in, there's a posture you can adopt that will help you grow less anxious, he gives an example. He says, I entreat, imagine being called out in the Bible, by the way. There's a few people that have this great, very distinct honor. They get called out in the Bible. He says, I entreat Iodia and I entreat, hers is wild, her name's wild, I gotta gear myself up, Uh, (laughs) Zuntaike, this is her name, don't name your kid that, I won't be able to pronounce it, these two ladies, I entreat you to agree in the Lord. Now almost certainly these two ladies were leaders within the Philippian church, in the sense that they were likely, we don't know this for sure, but if you remember, go back to Acts chapter 16. When the church of Philippi is born, the first convert is a woman named Lydia. And when you read that account, Lydia, this seller of purple goods, is down by the river and she's worshiping with a bunch of other ladies who are trying to worship God. They don't yet know Jesus, but they're trying to worship the one true God. It's possible, quite likely, that these are actually two of those ladies who were the the birthing of the Philippian church was, was through them, perhaps. Regardless, they, they are in a position of influence in the church enough that they get addressed in the letter. So he says to them, or he, or he speaks to them in the midst of a disagreement. So these two women have a disagreement with each other. Now, it's not most likely, almost certainly not doctrinal or theological, because there are other places where people have doctrinal and theological disagreements in other churches, and when Paul writes to them, it's a whole different ballgame. He's incredibly clear about what the proper doctrine should be, incredibly clear about what the proper theology should be. He doesn't mention that here. The assumption would be that this is a disagreement of preference, a disagreement may be rooted in some bitterness towards each other over something that is not deeply sinful, grounded in any sort of doctrinal dispute. Paul himself parted ways. You remember him and John Mark, for those of you that remember, they parted ways over some disagreements even about how the mission should go forward. They didn't disagree doctrinally, but they disagreed about how the mission should go forward, and they parted ways. They went different ways. So, so Paul understands that. So it seems all indications would point to the fact that, that this is not doctrinal. It's not even essential to the mission. It's more likely something to do with their preferences. This can happen in a church as quick as a hiccup, by the way. If you've grown up in the right church, or maybe the wrong church, you know that that's true. You've seen it happen. It's not about... I don't want us to to preach about Jesus anymore. We'll have a fight over that. But it's about like, well, I have this role in ministry. And when you do these things in your role in ministry, it's not helping my 
ministry. Or the way that you conduct yourself in your calling. I don't like it. It ain't cool. You should, you know, like those sorts of like nitpicky things. You've heard of churches splitting over carpet, perhaps. You know why you've heard of that? Because it's really happened. But that stuff has genuinely happened. The churches have split over the color of carpet that goes in. This is, this is the type of disagree. We don't know what it was. It's kind of good that we don't know what it was. You can put your own disagreements into it. You don't, you don't, you can read your disagreements into it, but we know that it's something that was likely not essential doctrine, not essential to the kingdom. This can happen in the church, and all it takes is me or you being willing to give the slightest quarter to even the slightest desire for this to be my kingdom. Right? Like this church, like you could even be like, oh, well, I'm all on board for this being thy kingdom come like 98% of the time. But through the thy kingdom come that I'm praying, I want a little bit of my kingdom too. I want some glory. I want some credit. I want thanked. I want affirmed. I want seen. I want known through this. Just takes a little bit of that. A little bit of selfishness in my heart. A little bit of selfishness in your heart to put us in the same place these ladies were in. Paul knows that this is serious, right? Like it's not just some little thing. It's a serious thing. And so he goes on in verse 3. Yes, I ask you also, which is weird, he kind of turns to first person and addresses someone that he refers to as his true companion. I think it's Luke, but we don't know for sure. Luke, uh, the physician who wrote the Gospel of Luke in the book of Acts. Remember in Acts 16, if you were here, they travel into uh, Philippi together, and then when Paul and Silas and others leave, Luke stays behind there in that church. He's likely a, a, a the one, the one who wrote the Gospel of Luke and wrote the book of Acts had connections in Philippi. I think it's him, but we don't know for sure. He says, uh, my true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the Gospel together with Clement. Again, we don't know who that was, but there is an ancient church father from this uh, day named Clement. It's possibly him and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. What matters more is what Paul does here. Paul says, help these ladies remember whose kingdom this is. They're forgetting. They think it's about them. Even if it's just a little bit. Remind them whose kingdom it is. There's two ways you're going to remind them, he says. Remind them of how they labored side by side. Show them the receipts. They bled next to each other. Maybe they've got scars from ministry side by side. Remind them of that, that they labored together for the sake of the gospel. There was a day when what mattered to them most was Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. And because that was true, they could be in the same foxhole together. Remind them of that. But not only that, and significantly more important, remind them that they belong to the kingdom of God together. He says their names are written in the book of life. We'll come back to that in a second. But that is terminology associated with the reality that those who are in Christ have their names written in a book, a book that is in heaven, that testifies of your belonging to the kingdom of God. 
and we'll come back to that, but he says that's the reality. Remind them whose kingdom it is, that they have served this kingdom in the past, and that their names are forever sealed as members of this kingdom so that they can let go of their own kingdom. Unity's been a theme in this letter the whole way through. And unity is easily sabotaged by selfishness. So in every church conflict, you should ask this. Is this because I'm clinging to my kingdom? It might not always be. Again, like I said, Paul parted ways with John Mark. There's times that that happens. Not every conflict is is bad. Some conflicts arise because of true sin. But the first question you should ask, if you find yourself in a conflict amongst the body of Christ, is, is this because I'm clinging to my kingdom? Ask that question first. And if it is, then repent and let it go. Let your kingdom go. Think of the churning associated with building your own kingdom, by the way. If you're trying to, and this can easily be related to maybe the pressure that maybe an Appalachian dad, like in a place where like, you know, you maybe you're raised in a family where the man is the chief provider. You will provide for your family. You will show up. You got all these expectations are placed on. Now you're a new father and you got this little baby and you start to feel all this churning over him. Am I going to be enough to provide for this family? Am I going to be enough to provide for my wife and for these kids? And you, you churn it, right? Like, like that's the idea of if you get into a church or you get into a ministry and you try to make it about yourself, you try to prove yourself through it be churning. There'll be anxiety, not joy, not hope. To grow into a non-anxious presence, we must let go of our own kingdoms. Thy kingdom come, that prayer, thy kingdom come is a healing balm to our anxiety. My weepy people who pray that. So first, to grow into a non-anxious presence, there's a posture. Let go of your own kingdom. Paul continues, to grow as a non-anxious presence, three disciplines, joy, prayer, and gratitude. Verse 4, he says, as a command, rejoice. You ever thought of that as an imperative? He gives it to us as an imperative. Rejoice in the Lord. Sometimes, always. Rejoice in the Lord, always. Again, in case you missed it, even though it was one breath ago, I will say rejoice. An imperative command to rejoice. Literally, be happy in God. That's a hard one. But it leads us to understand what he really means. It's not a sort of, oh, just smile and move on, right? Like, always be happy, right? Like, like that's not the idea. You're just going to grin and bear it. It's not that type of happiness. He's talking about a steady joy. Does life with Jesus make you have steady joy? Happiness that maybe isn't always smiley and bubbly, but it's also indestructible. It might be so deep in your soul sometimes that you're clinging on to it with gritted teeth because life is so difficult in the moment, but it's a joy that can't be stolen from you. That's what he's talking about. Rejoice In the Lord always. Know that there is always joy that belongs to you in Christ. We went to Brooklyn about a month ago. We were 
driving above New Jersey, which is the best way to go through New Jersey is above it, I found out. If you're from New Jersey, I'm sorry. So the, and it wasn't even a necessary joke. It, I was like, right? Like, it wasn't even necessary to tell that joke. Anyway, <laughs> that's called self-awareness too, that, uh, too late. That's called self-awareness that comes too late. So we're driving, and all of a sudden, the overheating, uh, the, you see, that's, I'm a great mechanic as well. I really know a lot about cars. The thing that tells you your car's too hot is like going up into danger zone, right? And we're in bumper-to-bumper traffic, and there's no exit. So I'm, like, freaking out because I am that way. Like I said, I'm this roller coaster of emotion. And uh, we finally get to an exit, and we pull down just in time to pull off under this kind of, what do they call, roundabout thing in in the gravel, like kind of in just barely out of traffic. And I open the hood, and smoke's just pouring out of it. And the thing was, we'd headed into New York early, because there were all sorts of things that my wife wanted to do. And I felt pressure to be the type of husband that allowed her to have all those things accomplished before this conference that we were going to. And so I am now churning. We're not going to get it done. And I start scheming, right? I'm also taking a Greek exam at the same time. <laughs> this is somehow all happening at the same time. I'm a mess. Trip away because we're 60. Uh, AAA comes, takes our car, we get on the subway, we end up in town, we're dragging our suitcases around, trying to do all the things that she wants to do. I've got a happy face, but I don't have a happy heart. We go through it all. There's even a bit of me that's patting myself on the back for helping get everything done, you know, like, I've turned it into this selfish thing. We get to the conference. We get there in time. We don't even get to check in our hotel room. We bring our bags up. We set them down next to our seats, like, I mean, as West Virginia as it gets. And we're sitting there in Brooklyn with our suitcases next to us. And they start singing, and I don't even remember what song it was, but like two songs in, I was wrecked. With how I had just wasted, in a sense, not completely, but in a sense, I had wasted the last four to five hours of my life as an opportunity to go deep into my soul and find that joy that's indestructible and untouchable, but instead I stayed surface level, consumed with all the goings-on around me that made me uncomfortable. What's funny is a couple of days later, my wife was upset because the car was fixed, and we had to, that's, we're different. I was upset that the car's not going to get fixed because I want to get home, and she wants to stay a couple extra days in New York. But, so we're all wired differently, right? What causes our anxiety or frustration. My point is, there was joy available to me. The depths of my soul, untouchable joy. We can tap into that, even in the most crazy circumstances. Rejoice. Finding truth worth clinging to, even when your eyes are blurry with tears. That's what we're talking about. So rejoice. That's one discipline. Pray. That's the next, verses 5 and 7. We, uh, we've heard these a few times, a couple of these. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything. But then he turns. He says, do not do this, but here's what you should do instead. But in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Through prayer 
literally through prayer and pleading prayer, prayer and supplication, prayer and gritty, groaning, desperate prayer. Because Paul knows that sometimes you pray like, dear Lord Jesus, thanks for the food. Amen. Uh, God, help us to have a good day today. Bless our home. And that's good. Do that. Make your request made known to God. And other times, this is a good way to pray too. I have no idea, God, what the heck I'm doing. I don't have a clue. I can't fix this. I can't change this. I don't see a way out. Pray like that too. Pray and prayer and pleading prayer. Make your request known to God. Here's a thought for the anxious heart. Let your anxiety be the scribe that writes your prayer list. Let your anxiety write your prayer list. What are you churning about? Pray about it. That's the exact meaning of the verse. And again, this isn't like Paul is not, I mean, Paul talks, he's an empath. He, we've seen that in this letter. He's someone that, that has battled anxiety on his own. He's not saying this in some like glib sense. Like, well, just pray and you'll be fine. No, that's not his, it, it takes time. It's a process. It's hard. Sometimes you don't want to pray. Sometimes the calm doesn't come right away. That's, he knows all that. He's not giving you some instant fix, right? This isn't microwave popcorn, right? This is a pot roast, slow cooker, right? Like, or apple butter. Or, you know, it's like that. It's like a, a process. But part of that process is pray. Choose prayer. When anxiety threatens to overwhelm you, pray about those things. Turn to God in prayer. Are you talking to God? You can. He wants to hear from you. Talk to him, even in your anxiety, and especially in your anxiety. And our third discipline was snuck into verse 6 as well. He says, when you pray, pray this way with thanksgiving. Be thankful. Three disciplines. Rejoice, pray, be thankful. Literally have words of gratefulness and expressions of thanks. Point being, it's, it's not enough to just say you have a thankful heart or to hang a towel in your kitchen that says grateful and has some pumpkin pie on it or something, right? Like, like that's not enough. We have this friend in, well, actually we support her ministry, Alpha Girl Care Uganda. And uh, her husband is the medical doctor who cared for Phoenix in her earliest days with us there in Uganda. And every now and then, you would do something kind for him, and he would just kind of receive that and just keep on going. And Anne would always look at us with a smile on her face, and she'd say, he said thank you in his heart. <laughs> like an excuse for, you know, his complete disregard of saying thank you. It's not enough to just be thankful in your heart. This, very, this word literally means express it, say it out loud. Are you grateful? Gratitude journals, things like that are, are actually not silly. I mean, it might not be for every person. That might not be the avenue you find, but that's not cheesy. If you, ever, if you know somebody that's really into a gratitude journal, don't make fun of them. What they're doing is following, whether they mean to or not, the instructions of Scripture and practicing thankfulness. Find your way. Practice thankfulness. Be rejoicing, be praying, be 
thankful. And Paul gives a sneak peek of the result. We already read it. We'll read it again. Verse 7, the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Peace that trumps reason will be yours through these disciplines of rejoicing and praying and being thankful. Lastly, he says this, to grow as a non-anxious presence, practice mindfulness. This is literally the point of these verses. And not in some new age way, but in a very biblically grounded way. Practice mindfulness. He says, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, be mindful, think about these things. Now, it'll be a really interesting study, and there's like blueletterbible.com if you're really like a, a nerd like me, and you really want to go in there, and you can see the Greek definition of each one of those words, just, and you, know, you can do that. It's incredibly interesting. I just lumped it into three buckets for us today. Keep it simple. It's one large idea. Dwell on things that are beautiful. First, true things. Things that are in line with God's reality, which is, which is reality. Think about true things, just things that are in line with His standards. Good things, things that are worthy of respect and innocent and virtuous. little chicken soup for the soul type of things. Think about those things. Like everything doesn't have to be Breaking Bad or, or Dexter or, you know, whatever these dark shows are that society loves now, including myself. I repent, but I just, you know, but it doesn't have to all be that. In fact, it shouldn't all be that. You need a diet of good things in your life. Things that put a lump in your throat. Things that remind you that there's goodness in the world. You need those things. Things, put those things in front of your mind, inspiring things, things that are pleasing and beloved, things that are worthy of a response of, of praise. You need to stop sometimes and look at the sunset. You just do. God does that for us almost every night for a reason. You need to, at the traffic light, stop and look at the changing leaves. They're all gone now. It would be depressing, but a month ago, right? And appreciate those things. Dwell on the beauty. I have a counselor because I'm broken. That's not true. That's a really rude thing to say, but I do. He calls it reordering your thoughts. And he talks to me about it constantly. He talks to, about what it looks like to kind of be self-aware enough to see what it is you're thinking about and the effect that it's having. And, and he's not alone in this, but the effect that it's having on you and and how do you replace that thought with a different thought? A pastor's wife in the Harbor Network just this past Thursday, she talked about beauty hunting. But that's one of the things her therapist had given her to do. In a time where everything seemed dark, a time when everything seemed depressing and, and frustrating and overwhelming, force yourself to look for the beautiful things, lay claim to them, lay ownership to them. For some, this is not easy work. But Paul's not on an island here. This isn't just some like random weird Bible advice. This is like science is in line with this. We can as people think differently. 
It's not easy work. It takes time and effort and energy, but we can reorder the way we think. Paul paints a blueprint. What you need to replace those negative thoughts with are these things, the beautiful things. So, we have a posture, forget your own kingdom. We have three disciplines, joy, prayer, and gratitude, and we have mindfulness, dwelling on beautiful things. These are pathways to being a non-anxious presence in the world around us. But, this is the only way to close a sermon with Jesus, the only way that any of these things can be true in us is through Jesus. And Paul has made that obvious. If you've noticed, and if you have a, a copy of the Scriptures, you'll seen that we've gone through three paragraphs in this passage, and at the end of each paragraph, he's pointed them to Jesus. When he called us to have a posture of forgetting our own kingdom, he closed by saying, uh, verse uh, 3, whose names are in the book of life. He reminded them and their disagreeing and their clinging for their own kingdom that their names were written in the book of life. That's a place of deep security because of Jesus. Revelation chapter 21, verse 27. But nothing, Paul's talking, or uh, John is talking about the kingdom of God to come. And he says, nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. You don't get into the kingdom unless you're on the guest list. But here's the good news. Here's, here's your method of entry or getting RSVPing on the guest list for the kingdom. My sheep hear my voice. Uh, this is John writing as well, or he's quoting Jesus. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. John recounts how then Jesus said this. I give them eternal life, those who follow Jesus. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Jesus says, I'm holding on to you and my and God the Father's got some super big hands too and He's got His fist over top of you too. You ain't going nowhere. If you're in Christ, you're in Christ forever. If your name gets written down in the Lamb's book of life for entry into the kingdom, it's always there. You can stand firm in that. He says, I and the Father are one. If you have that kind of security in that type of unshakable kingdom that will always be yours, regardless of if everything else around you goes down the toilet, then in that moment, you can let go of your own kingdom. Right? And instead, live in the reality of the only kingdom that will outlast all the other kingdoms. That's the reality. That's why he points us to Jesus. At the end of the next paragraph, when he called us to to three disciplines of of rejoicing and praying and being thankful, he said this in verse 7, And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Jesus, you can rejoice and pray and be thankful, but none of these things can give you mind-blowing peace apart from Jesus. Here's a Christmas verse for you. We get ready for the season. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, For to us a child is born, Jesus 
To us a son is given, Jesus, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, Jesus, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Everlasting, Father, and Prince of Peace. The peace of God comes through the disciplines of rejoicing and prayer. Thankfulness are only yours through Jesus. Because of him, there are pathways to peace. And then in the last paragraph, he said, when he called us to, to dwell on the beautiful things, remember he ended verse 9, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. What did they learn and received and seen and heard? The gospel, the realities about Jesus. That's what they had seen and learned and received, heard from Paul and the other apostles. And he says, you've received them both doctrinally, you've received knowledge, and you've received them practically action. He uses a word proso, which really isn't that big of a stretch from practice. That's how languages work. But the word itself means in practicing that you will both experience, receive, the truths of the gospel, and you will practice, embody, do the truths of the gospel. He says, keep, right, receiving the gospel and keep doing the gospel. You want to be a non-anxious presence in the world around you? Keep receiving the gospel and keep doing the gospel. Sounds a lot like our mission statement because our mission statement is not original. Our mission statement says, Experience, receive, and embody, do, redemption and renewal, two fancy words for the gospel, in Christ alone. Be transformed internally and externally by the gospel. You want to dwell on the beautiful things, you must know how to define beauty. And beauty, the gold standard of beauty, is found in the the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. All the brutal and beautiful moments of his life, we see the definition of what beauty is. It gives us a room for suffering. It gives us room for uh, miracles. It gives us room for resurrection. It gives us room for teaching. It gives us room for repentance. And all of those things are beautiful because of Jesus. Do you know him? Are you a Christian? It's the buzzword or the, the title. of Someone who believes that Jesus died on the cross, was buried and raised from the dead. When we baptize people in this horse trough, we ask them three questions. Do you believe that Jesus is God? Yes. Do you believe that Jesus died on the cross and was raised from the dead? Yes. Do you believe that he has the power to forgive sins? Yes. In that moment, those three things being believed is all it takes to become a Christian. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. If you're not a Christian, I would love to have that conversation with you. But if you do know him, are you growing to be like Jesus? Are you a non-anxious presence in your world? Two things. We can only do that first, yoked up with Jesus. So experience his non-anxious presence. I heard one, one pastor say this. Are you apprenticing with Jesus? The apprenticeship is a lost art. But that's to to walk with someone, right? Like yoked up with them, learning from them to do things like they do things, 
to see things like they see things, to understand things like they understand things, to say things like they say things. Are you apprenticing with Jesus? Are you orienting your life around Jesus? Here's another thing. Are you getting any unhurried time in his presence? No, too busy. Are you finding moments where the walls are thin? By that I mean you feel the presence of Jesus. Literally, you experience it in your life. Again, that looks different for each person. But do you actually have unhurried moments where you... I know we're busy, and I know this is ultra-like uh, convicting. Hear it from my heart, not as me beating anyone down. But hear the reality of it. John Piper says this, one of the great uses of Twitter and Facebook will be to prove at the last day that prayerlessness was not from lack of time. That's convicting. I say I don't have time to be with Jesus. But I got time for a lot of other stuff. Some of it's really important. Some of it ain't. Are you taking time to be with Jesus? And to two, with Jesus, you can grow into a non-anxious presence in the world of ambient anxiety. Embody the non-anxious presence of Jesus. I'm going to read three questions. We've got a new thing here, super awkward, where we sit for two minutes, 120 seconds at the end of the sermon. We just sit in it. It's a chance for you to pray, a chance for you to prepare your heart for communion. We don't do an altar call. It's between you and God there in your seat. But we take two minutes, 120 seconds. These questions will be up on the screen. I'm just going to read them to you. Where are you churning in this life? Because you're trying to hold on to your own kingdom. Of the three disciplines, rejoicing, praying, and gratitude, which one will you work on this week? And how will you do it? And three, how will you practice mindfulness this week in accordance with Philippians 4.8? How will you dwell on the beautiful things in your life? Think on those things. Might the Holy Spirit convict us each of of where he's leading us. Father, thank you so much that here in this place, your non-anxious presence is here. Might we experience your peace. Might we experience your calm. Might we experience your beauty. Might we know you in this place. And might this week we make steps forward, not in our own strength and in our own power and some like, you know, gritty labor of of our own self-ability, but in resting yoked up with Jesus in your power, might we grow to experience you more and to embody you more in the world around us. In the name of Jesus we pray. Thanks for listening. You can subscribe to this feed wherever you listen to podcasts. We exist to experience and embody redemption and renewal in Christ alone. And we'd love for you to experience what God is doing as Jesus builds Mercy Village Church. Connect with us online at www.mercyvillage.church.